0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ in His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org.
1: Today's scripture is from Micah chapter 6, 3-8. through 8. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened for Shittim and Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord, What I shall come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: Thank you, Christian, for reading that passage of Scripture. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, great to see you. I think I recognize some of you, but most of you, I don't. Um, my name is Paul Lim, and I uh, work about 200 yards straight ahead. I work at I've been teaching at Vanderbilt University for the last uh, 17 years, and I've also been with Christ Press as a scholar in residence, primarily in the old Hickory location for the last seven years. So at Vanderbilt, I'm too conservative. And at Christ's prayers I'm too liberal. And <laughs> I don't know where I am. And that's actually not a good, a bad spot, because Jesus himself was regarded as too conservative by, the, by some people who thought like, okay, this is too much. And then for some others, he was too liberal. So uh, to, to the Pharisees, he was too liberal. To the uh, Sadducees is too conservative. So um, as the scripture has been read, and before we look to the Lord uh, for his word, let's uh, pray one more time if you're able and willing. Let's pray. Gracious God and glorious Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for your mercies that are new every day. As we stand before you, may you receive us with rejoicing because of who Christ is and what it is that he has done. And as we have just read this passage of scripture as our word for this week. May you encounter us in it. May you encourage and empower us through it. And as a result of it, may we really have that desire to be transformed into your likeness as your spirit draws us nearer and nearer to Christ. In your name we prayed. Amen. Amen. So, right, well, um, today's text, as we have read here, is perhaps best remembered for verse 8, right? Verse 8 that we have heard is basically saying, He has shown you, O man, and what it is that, that what, what is good and what does God require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So that's almost always taken in isolation from the rest of the chapter. And of course, that is the case, because... When you have to do Bible memorization, you're not going to memorize the entire chapter. So it kind of, we get that verse 8 isolated from the rest of it. So for the rest of our time, I would like to offer three points that help shed light on the context of this beautiful and sublime text. Three points that begin with the letter R. They are remember, repent, and rejoice. It just occurred to me that I usually start my sermons or talks with some kind of illustration, but I just thought, look, spring break, and you probably want to go back out to where you are, so I just get right to it, but you will get your money's worth because it'll be about 25, 30 minutes, so it'll keep you in here long enough. So, okay, so remember, repent, and rejoice. So let's look at the first point, remember. So this is, we're doing a series at Christ Press on forgiveness through the book of Micah. Micah is a minor prophet. Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah, and they were doing things. They were, so prophets are basically, they are the whistleblowers. They are calling out the people of God to be more mindful of who God is and whose they are. And, it is there, and it's not an envious role. It is going to be, you're always going to say, hey, hey, wait, 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 we can do better than that. We need to know who God is, and in knowing who God is, that will enable us to remember whose we are. So these whistleblowers called, aka prophets, didn't always have the best, easiest job. I mean, in fact, Isaiah, when he was called by the Lord, he basically was told that, you know, you're going to go and preach to the people who aren't going to give you the time of the day. They're going to repudiate your your kind of, you know, preaching. They're going to reject you ultimately, and they're actually going to basically kind of hand you over. To be, to be, uh, um, to be, um, kind of forgotten and 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 forsaken as well. So this is Micah's kind of a burden as well. Micah, as a spokesman for God, for Yahweh, the God of Israel, he's having to stand in the gap, standing in the gap between God and the people of God. And the prophets do not always have the most kind of delightful task. And we see that Micah is also no exception. So the first point of this sermon is remember. We see that in verses three through 5. So what God is reminding the people of God time and again throughout the Hebrew Bible, throughout the Old Testament, is the covenant faithfulness of God. God is faithful. Even when you are faithless, even when you forsake me, I will not forget you. Even when you kind of go away from me, but I'm actually going to come after you like a hound from heaven because you are mine. You belong to me. And this is What God says, covenant faithfulness of God. Notice with me in verse 3. My people, what have I done to you? How, How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to you, so on and so forth. So basically, remember these following things. So on the one hand, there is a covenant faithfulness of God. The word that is used in the Old Testament throughout is this Hebrew word called chesed. Chesed means you know, that means that God is going to be faithful because God has sworn an oath, you know, to himself, uh, to Abraham, to Sarah, and to all of their posterity that I'm going to be your God and I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And that is the kind of constant, constant message throughout. And you know what else? In the Old Testament, you know there's a command from the Lord to the people of God repeated throughout. The most repeated command in the Old Testament is what? Two words. Something not. Something not. Say that again. Fear not. That's exactly right. Fear not. Fear not for I am with you. Fear not for I am with you. That that, that really encapsulates the covenant faithfulness of God. God says fear not because you have lots of occasions to be afraid could be your health, could be your finance, could be your relationships, could be you feeling isolated, feeling that you don't know anyone, you're new in this town, you feel like people that you care about and love are kind of far away, and you feel really isolated. It says God said, no, 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 no. fear not, for I am with you. And then there is also this tragic corresponding nature of the unfaithfulness of the people of God, and we'll talk about that in just a little bit. So, and God says, remember God's act of deliverance. And also it says, remember God's messengers, Moses, Aaron, and their sister Miriam. It says, I've sent my messengers for you and ahead of you so that they can be my spokespersons. Also remember how God reversed the intention of curses into blessing. Notice with me in verse 5. My people remember what Balaam, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Now, let's look at that. So, okay, who is Balak? He says he's a king of Moab and he plotted something, right? And it says that who is Balaam, the son of Beor, how he answered. Do you know what that context is? So, the context is very simple, right? So, Balak is a king who was standing in the way of Moses and the people of God from their entrance into the promised land, right? And then Balaam was so, and then, so basically Balak said, okay, Balaam, you seem like a good prophet for hire, so why don't you come and say something, pronounce curse upon the people of Israel. And friends, you know, words mean something. Words are powerful. We say things, and as we said in our confession of sin, the mouth that God has created, we often use that as a way to curse people. And Bala- Balaam, uh, the, Balak, the king said, let me pay you lots of money, and I want you to go and curse the people of Israel so that they will be cursed rather than blessed. So Balaam is paid pretty goodly some money, and he's now standing, and he's about to do it. But then guess who gets in the way? Do you remember? There is uh, Balaam's donkey. It is sort of like the OG Shrek, if there ever was one, right? (laughs) I remember the movie Shrek, and there's a talking donkey. And I was trying to share the gospel with my cousin, and then my son was watching. We were watching this movie. Uh, This is back when he was about six or seven, so about 12 years ago. And we were watching the movie Shrek and then, you know, my son watches Shrek talking and says, dad, that's Balaam's donkey. (laughs) And my cousin's like, who's Balaam and what is this? And, And right here, Balaam was supposed to speak you know, negative things and destructive things about Israel, but then the donkey gets in the way because God actually, and this is what God is reminding the people of Israel. Remember what Balak tried to do. Remember what Balaam tried to do. And through all of these things that are invisible and unseen by you, but I'm gonna work through my purposes. So humans plot against God and the people of God, but then I'm gonna actually have a plan that you may not even be aware of. That means remember that I'm with you. Fear not, for I am with you. So God is reminding the people, I mean, so God through Micah is reminding people, when you have reasons to be afraid, when you have reasons to feel lonely and isolated and feeling like everything is kind of, you're hemmed in against the forces of this world and forces of the evil one and forces of your own kind of self-pity and whatever else is, remember, I am with you. Remember Balak, remember Balaam, because I have actually done things for you when every force was against you. Remember also your own spectacular failings from Shittim to Gilgal. So where is Shittim and where is Gilgal? So these are kind of unfamiliar names perhaps, at least the one Shittim is not a familiar name. It's last encampment before Shittim was the last kind of campsite before they cross over the Jordan into the Promised Land. And we read about that in Numbers, the book of Numbers in chapter 25. And Gilgal, what is Gilgal? Gilgal is the first Uh, kind of campsite after crossing the Jordan into the promised land. So God is saying, remember these two places. Remember the last place before you cross over into the promised land, and remember also the first place that that you have kind of come to after you cross the promised land. So let me ask you, what are the Shittims and Gilgals of your life? You know, sometimes we need to remember the faithfulness of God in carrying us. I remember our move from Boston to Nashville in 2006. So I was offered a position at Vanderbilt, and it was kind of some, somewhat late, I won't go into the details, but then we were so excited, and Vanderbilt's a good school. I was teaching at a, at, a, at a theological seminar. I really enjoyed it. There's a place called Gordon-Conwell, and loved that place. So we are coming here, and then so we came for a house visit, and you know, looked around, and we realized Nashville is not cheap. Boston is not cheap, but then we thought like, Nashville will be able to afford lots of house. Not really, so we go back, and. And there, we had this crazy rainfall, and I had moved, so we were our realtors said, we want you to stage your house, so move all the stuff that has any whatever, and all into the basement. So all the books, about 50 boxes of books went down there, and as a scholar, books matter to me, so I, all 50 boxes of books went down there, and other things, guess what, like, it rained a lot. And then when we came home, I didn't realize, I, I just, I, I thought, like, maybe I'll go check. No joke. The basement was about like knee high with water. So I was kind of freaking out. And then, so, and it was kind of a tough transition. And then I have this kind of a a condition called gout, uh, which flares up and it kind of knocks me off. So for the first five years of our transition from Boston to Nashville, it was like from Shittim to Gilgal. I mean, it really was, I know you better pronounce that word very well because it kind of... (laughs) Shit Tim, right? <laughs> so it was really, <laughs> it wasn't easy. As I was preparing this sermon, yeah, my Shit Tim is Boston, my Gilgal is Nashville, because the Shittim of Boston meant that I lost 50 boxes of books. And, you know, I feel like, oh, man. And then I have a couple of books that I kind of, you know, kind of rescued. But still the pages all kind of, you know, you know what I'm talking about. And molded and stuff. But I have one, uh, two-volume set as a memento, as a reminder. It's, I, I can't open the book up anymore. But it's just sitting in my library, you know, my home, home office as a memento or as a reminder. Remember my Shittim. And my Gilgal, where is your Shittim? Where is your Gilgal? God says, "Remember my faithfulness for you." So and and so basically that's what happened. And then, um, what did the people do at Shittim before they went to Gilgal? So okay, Balaam tried to curse the people of Israel. He couldn't do it because his talking donkey got in the way. He ended up blessing the people of God. So then Bala came up with plan B. says, okay, let me seduce them with false, you know, false religion and beautiful women. And so it went. And, and they fell headlong into kind of plundering themselves you know, themselves uh, into this, this uh, way that wasn't pleasing in the sight of the Lord. So as a result, as it says in Numbers chapter 25, very, very kind of macabre detail, but 24,000 people died as a result of the plague that befell that community because of their rebellion, right? This is kind of a dark, dark page. And God says, remember Shittim, remember Gilgal, because as I've been telling you to fear not, and I'm with you, you have not been. so." I And it's kind of a reminder of my constant, persistent pursuit of you. Faithfulness of Yahweh, faithlessness of Israel in many ways. And you might say, Paul, come on, we're better than Israel, aren't we? Are we sure about that? Are we sure about that? If you really think that you could have been better better than Israel on your own, guess what? You don't need Jesus. Let me say something that will shock you. If you felt more morally superior to the story of Israelites in Numbers chapter 25, you should read that chapter. It will kind of shock you in many ways. Then you don't need Jesus as your substitutionary atonement. You just need him as a moral uplift. Then I wonder whether your Christianity is real at all. It is, what I'm talking about is the issue of idolatry. They substituted a different God for the true God. Do we do that? Yes, we do. Yes, I do. Let me personalize it for you. So, you know, um, so God, I don't know about you, but God says, I want, you, I want me, God says, to be your ultimate award and your approval, right? You should, I should be the ultimate award for you. And I should be the ultimate approval for you. I think, you know, in in my life, I have two approvals that matter to me the most. Divine approval, namely God, which I already have in Jesus Christ, and spousal approval from my wife. But guess what? They're the the primary and secondary approvals, but I often forget that, and I go after the tertiary kind of approval. So this is what happened to me yesterday. I was at a conference honoring one of my colleagues who's turned 70, and he's going to be retiring in a couple of years' time. It's a big conference in his honor and I was asked to give one of the one, one of the uh, papers and, and talks and I don't know I've given talks all over in different uh, you know kind of schools and different churches and whatever and I'm not really that like afraid or seeking kind of people's approval but in this one because this guy who was retiring is one of my big mentors I really wanted to like I prepared a paper in such a way that I hope he liked it right and there's nothing wrong with it because at your workplaces whether you're in healthcare or uh, whatever else you do you know, as, a, as, as a consultant or as an engineer, as you know, stay home parent. I mean, our work matters to God. I mean, it's uh, something that we've been talking a lot in our NIFW. One of the things that I do at Christ Press is I've been serving as the primary lead uh, instructor for the Gotham program, which happens every year. And Kurt Schnabel is right there. <laughs> and, and so it's been a real delight. But your work does matter to God. So what I do, but then what happens to me is while people's approval matters to me, but if I substitute that approval of my boss or my colleague as the ultimate one, as the ultimate one, then I'm no different from the people of Israel. Let me say that again. We kind of distanciate ourselves from the people of Israel. Oh, they're the idolaters. They fell for false gods and, you know, all this, like, immorality. Yeah, yeah, and we say we're better. We're not. Because in a subtle way, and not so subtle way, we substitute the real God for something that is much more of a cheap imitation that ultimately will not and cannot save you. That leads me to my second point, repent. Verses 6 and 7. Notice with me in verses 6 and 7. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? So if these are rhetorical questions. Does he need burnt offerings of calves? Does he need burnt offerings of 1,000 rams? Or 10,000 rivers of oil? Maybe even my firstborn for my transgressions? Undergirding this kind of rhetoric of hyperbole lies a true desire of Yahweh. So these are hy- hyperbolical expressions. Should I give up my firstborn? God is saying, no, I don't want your firstborn. Should I give God 1,000 you know, rivers of olive oil? God says, no, I don't even need that. What matters is not whether it is a yearling calf or a thousand rams. All the externals do not mean squat unless it is matched with an internal disposition of true repentance. That I'm going to change my... And the word that is used for repentance in the Greek text is metanoia, which means changing of one's mind. You change your mind and say, Lord... I realize I've substituted you for different gods, and, 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 and that change of mind will inevitably have an external and belief and behavioral consequences. So let's actually talk about changing of our minds through our liturgy. So the second point being repent. So, you know, liturgy is just a, a big word that means everything that happens in a worship service, right? Right? From the very beginning of, you know, welcome to Christ Press Music Road to the last benediction, the, entire, the entirety of liturgy is constructed and designed so that all the way through you will encounter the living God. So let me tell you something. It is a complete royal waste of time if you come to this place and you fail to encounter the living God. Now, we are all different people, and we're all different kind of beings, so that some people encounter God through the Lord's Supper, and they feel like the tactile element of drinking and eating and touching thing will help me to encounter the living God. Amen, and that's wonderful. It could also be saying hello to people that you kind of, in the handshake or in the hug or just fist bump or whatever it is that you encounter, ah, God is real because I see Christ in the face of the other. As Mother Teresa reminded so many, both in Calcutta and beyond, that when you see the people in their faces, you see the living Christ. It may also be in our prayer, prayer of the people or prayer of confession, that that we realize the desperate need for our substitute and our surety called Jesus. But whatever it is, the entire thing of this liturgy is constructed so that we encounter the living God. So that means as we encounter the living God, what is inevitably going to happen is that we are led to repent. Repenting is changing of our minds. Oh, I forgot again that God is real. God is my primary approval and my primary affection. But I've substituted something else, you for something else that do not ultimately satisfy. So changing of our minds through the liturgy of our our worship right here. A very, very powerful example of repentance comes from a a speech given by Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass was an African-American abolitionist who, on July 5, 1852, gave a speech at an event commemorating the signing of the Declaration of Independence, held at Corinthian Hall in Rochester, New York. And this is probably uh, regarded as, as, as a, one of the best, known, uh, best and most powerful and prophetic American speech. It was to a group of abolitionists. It was with the Union side, although the Civil War has yet to take place. Remember, Rochester, New York, not Rochester, Tennessee. He said, this 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice, I must mourn, to drag a man in fetters into the grand illuminated Temple of Liberty and call upon him to join you in joyous anthems, were inhuman mockery and sacrilegious irony. Do you mean, citizens, to mock me by asking me to speak today? This existence of slavery in this country brands your republicanism as a sham, your humanity as a base pretense, and your Christianity as a lie. It destroys your moral power abroad, it corrupts your political politicians at home, it saps the foundations of religion, it makes your name a hissing and a byword to a mocking earth. What, to the American slave, is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To the slave, your celebration is a sham. Your boasted liberty unholy license. Your national greatness swelling vanity. Your souls of rejoicing are empty and heartless. Your denunciation of tyrants brass-fronted impudence. Your shouts of liberty and equality hollow mockery. Your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings with all your religious parade and solemnity are to God mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety and hypocrisy. A thin veil to cover up crimes which would disgrace a nation of savages. There's not a nation on, on the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of the United States at this very hour. On 5th of July, 1852, Frederick Douglass. Mic drop, indeed. Many have declared this to be the most prophetic American speech ever. You get a sense of the the, sort of the powerful rhetoric of Isaiah, of Micah, and they're calling the people out and saying, hey, 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 we can do better, we can be better, repent. That then leads me to my third and the final point, rejoice. Remember, repent, and rejoice. The purpose of God reminding the people of Israel and the people of Jesus, like yourselves and many of you and me, as to who God is, is for us to remember and repent so that there could be true rejoicing again. So the purpose of the religion of Israel and religion of Jesus and Christianity is to really rejoice in the Creator and our Redeemer and our Lover and our Friend and our Lord. It is not just to remember. It is not just to repent, but both those things are ultimately to lead to our rejoicing in the right object. So that's what I mean. We often rejoice at the wrong things, right? I mean, I don't have been filling the filling out the bracket. I, I mine is completely destroyed. You know, <laughs> I should have picked. I should have picked Princeton. I mean, they beat like you know, they won like two games already in Sweet Sixteen, and and you know, I Furman who thought Furman would go, but they won the first game, and so. I don't know. So, you know, I I rejoice at the wrong things. I'm thinking, okay, my bracket will get me somewhere this time. It's always going to disappoint because there are all these surprises, Cinderella's that show up at the right or wrong time, depending on what school you're talking about. So we often rejoice at the wrong things. How often do you or do we rejoice at our neighbor's success? When you hear that your neighbor or coworker is succeeding or crushing, do you feel like you're crushing with him or you feel like you're getting crushed? You know what I'm saying? I don't know. I mean, there is a, so I was born in Korea and there's a Korean saying, and I'll say that in Korean for you, 이우시 땅을 사면 배가 아프다. That means when your neighbor, so literal translation is, when your neighbor buys a plot of land, you get a sudden stomachache. <laughs> like, you know, it's like, what, my neighbor is getting rich and I just have, oh man, terrible stomachache. True rejoicing. So let me ask you, where, where are you rejoicing? At what or in whom do you rejoice? God says, you know what, I want you to rejoice in me. I want you to rejoice in all things because you know that Christ is near, as Paul reminds the Philippians. True rejoicing comes as we remember who Yahweh is and also what it is that he has done. True rejoicing comes as we repent and change our minds as to whose we are, our true belonging. True rejoicing is comprised of these three things, doing justice, loving mercy, and walking with humility. Let me say that again. True rejoicing, according to this text, true rejoicing will come as you do justice, as you love mercy and kindness, and as you walk with humility. But let me also surprise you. Are you ready for this? Justice, mercy, and humility. These are beautiful slogans. I mean, a lot of people say, like, Yeah, you know, I United you know, Methodist Church or some people, some ministry say, like, Yeah, what we care about is justice, mercy, and humility. Yes, but here is a kicker. For justice, mercy, and humility to be fully flourishing and functionalized, we need Jesus. Let me tell you why. My vision and version of justice will collide with someone else's. Let's say this half of the sanctuary is Russia. This half of the sanctuary is Ukraine. All right? And if if I ask the Russian group here, like, hey, what is your vision and version of justice? And I ask this Ukrainian group about what is your vision and version of justice. Do you think they will agree? No, absolutely not. They will say, no, my vision and version of justice collides with yours. That is why we have wars on end. That is why if you ask somebody who is from, you know, South Sudan or North Korea or whatever, like, you know, different countries like Venezuela and, and America and Britain and whatever. And say, what is your vision and version of justice? We come up with different vision and version of justice. We also come up with different version and vision of mercy as well, kindness as well. So my vision and version of justice will, will collide. And this is, this is why our country, let's be honest, is so polarized, right? Because there are communities who are seeking justice, and, and, and their vision and, and version of justice is different from community B different from community C, community Z. And, and we got lots and lots, and people are okay. Like, you know, I think you're, I was, um, yeah, I was at a, at a, at a gathering recently, and, and I said something. I was in a spring break, so I was with my son and his baseball team. And, and so, like I said, I am too liberal for my conservative friends and too conservative for my liberal friends. And I just happened to mention that, you know, I like this particular former senator, um, you know, as a friend, and he's he's someone that I've known through another mutual friend, and I said, you know, someone like him that I would love to see as a candidate for Republican kind of a presidential race, and I said, I'm not even a Republican, I like this guy, and my friend is a, you know, baseball dad's talking, right, I mean, we love baseball, and our sons are playing baseball on the same team, and he looks at me in the eyeballs, and like, you know, hey, Paul, what did you just say, like, this guy, and he goes, I am really ashamed of you, Like, and he was uh, kidding, but not so kidding. I'm like, what? This guy's as moderate as you can find in among the Republicans. And he goes, that's the problem, because we cannot get him elected. And I realize, yes, that's right. In the realm of politics, a lot of times, a lot of times what gets the vote is polarizing figures. And so I realize, again, I, I, again sorry to get into politics, I, I, but, but just an illustration of this very simple point. That our vision of justice, so my friend, this, this baseball that I've known for like seven years, we don't always talk about, we always talk about our sons change up and fastball and whatever. First time, this are, both our sons are seniors, they're graduating, he's going to one college, my son's going to a different college, so I said, hey, maybe we can talk about politics. And, uh, bad idea, right? But then, <laughs> what I came to realize, my friend, my dear brother in the Lord, right? My dear brother in the Lord, his vision and version of justice that he's convinced of, is fairly different from my vision and version of justice that I'm pretty fairly convinced of is a good one. I'm not saying if even there's the right one, and you you can multiply examples of that sort, and we can come to this kind of immediacy of recognition. Like, huh, Houston, we got a problem. We got a problem of this pursuit of different justice. That's why we need Jesus. That's why my brother in the Lord, whose view on so and so senator, needs Jesus. That's why I, in my endorsement of that particular former senator, needs Jesus. I need Jesus, my friend needs Jesus, we all do. Because I need to be saved from my own prejudice and my own perspectives. I need Jesus because of what I believe. My friend needs Jesus because of what he believes. Because our vision and version of justice, mercy, and humility. Now, we might say my humility is often a false one, mine, and often one that is on display. And Martin Luther, you know, one of the main, main figures in Protestant uh, movement, uh, Protestant Christianity, said humility... Has gotten me faster to the doors of hell than to the stairway to heaven. Because he felt like, okay, so long as I humble myself and this is how I'm gonna be actually more presentable to God, I gotta jump through all of these hoops of self denial in order to be acceptable to God. And he realized, you know what? If anyone could be justified because of one's monasticism or monkery, I would have become justified before anybody else. Yet what I came to realize at the end of the day was my desperate need for Jesus, my surety and my substitute. So Jesus is your substitute. Jesus is the one who's offering us because Jesus is also your image restorer. Jesus is your travel companion and your goal of all your travels. So we're about to receive the Lord's Supper and Jesus said in, the, in this beautiful way in the Gospel of Matthew, come unto me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Did you know that the word restaurant it means that it's a place where you rest and receive respite. That means you get to sit down from your travels and enjoy a nice meal. That means in a, in a very kind of small and minuscule way, this is the celestial restaurant that you're invited to, that you get to have a tiny, tiny morsel of gluten-free or regular bread or wine or grape juice, so you got, you got many choices here. But this is a tiny appetizer, yet a real thing. It's not a fake thing. It's not some fake food here. It's real food that is actually alluring you to see the grander beauty of who Christ is and what it is that he's offering you. He's saying, I am actually here to give you that rest. As Augustine said, that you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find rest, their rest in you. Friends, maybe you are like me in many ways restless until I come into the sanctuary. And I desperately need the rest-giving presence of Jesus because not only does he give me rest, but also he is my, he rest assured, I can be rest assured knowing that he is who he says he is. He rejoices over me. When I look at Christ, I don't see this angry judge or stern judge. When I see, look in the face of the judge, I see the one who justifies me and rejoices over me and says, You are okay. You are okay because I have made you, I've created you, I have recreated you, and I'm now inviting you to myself. So let's come to the table. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your mercies that are new every day. Thank you for the worshipers that are here, whether they have committed their lives to you or not, regardless. Thank you for the knocking on their heart's doors. Lord, I pray that this, this ministry of Christ Press music World will continue to Be drawing people who may not have heard of you, who may have heard you wrongly into the doorsteps and into the sanctuary to encounter the living God, the real God, who says, you know what? I had you from eternity, that you were and all of us are beautifully and fearfully made. Therefore, we are born to praise you and to proclaim your goodness in our life. Thank you for the ministry here, and may you continue to receive great glory, and may your people be receiving such a great joy. May they be able to rejoice in you as you rejoice over us. Thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.